1: My name is Rich Schmidt, we're here with Bobby Rowett. It's July 25th, 2023. We're at Portland Wine Storage in Portland. Bobby,
2: thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, first question is why wine? Uh, wine really captured all the different parts of my life that, that I wanted to sort of explore through the course of my whole life. And so, um, I mean, essentially when I was in going to college, I studied philosophy. And what that generally means is that you're interested in ideas and thoughts and not really on like specific jobs or how you're going to bring in a paycheck. (laughs) Um, So what I realized is that uh, afterwards, I I started working in a wine shop just to get a job. Um, And I had bartended and worked in restaurants um, since I was 15 years old. And I, and I realized, oh, I can become a sommelier. There's all these different avenues that I can get involved in in the wine industry. Um, really, in the back of my mind, what I always wanted to do was just travel, travel the world. And um, I didn't grow up with money to be able to do that. So um, I, I eventually realized that uh, the wine industry could, could um, get me where I wanted to go and get me around the world. So... Um, uh, and along that path, I had so many conversations with um, winemakers and, and family members of people in different places around the world, um, and just saw what their perspective is. And I realized really that wine is this like all-inclusive culture. It's not um, just a job. It's not just a hobby. It's not just something to have at a party or to have with food or whatever. You know, it's like it's all these things, and it's also um, a way to. I think explore, um, a lot of interesting intellectual pursuits. Um, things that I've been interested in for my whole life. Um, phenomenology is really like a philosophy that's, um, stuck with me, um, even since my college days. And it's really about, um, experiencing, uh, consciousness and reality through what's happening in the moment. Um, it's based on direct experience versus like this, um, Cartesian approach where it's materialist and you have objects that exist and you just sort of interact with them. Um, I never saw wine as something that just exists and, you know, like people try it and it's going to taste the same way to everyone, for example. It tastes different to everyone and it it depends on uh, what your mood is that day or uh, what other smells are in the room or in the air. what you know just who you're with all of these things are you at a party or or what's going on around you that's all a part of like when you drink that wine the experience you have and so that experience itself I think is is what I really appreciate um, in life in general and wine really like captures that perfectly so. Once I realized that, I was like, this is something that I could explore for my whole life, <laughs> and, and it's a job that I could do in all these different ways, and I'll, I'll never get bored because I'm, I'm just th- that person that gets bored with my jobs, um, and I need something new to be happening to continue to be interested in, a new challenge or something, a new way to think about it, and wine, wine's always covered all of those bases, so.
1: Well, let's back up for a second and talk about life before wine. So tell us about where you were born and raised and, uh, as you were getting ready to
2: head off to school, uh, how that decision came about. Um, so yeah, I was originally, I was born in a very small town of a couple thousand people in Idaho, uh, called Mountain Home, Idaho. Um, and, uh, I eventually ended up moving to, uh, the big city of Boise, Idaho when, uh, when I was in elementary school and, um, wine was wine or alcohol in general i mean we would we would drink alcohol when we go up to our family cabin or something like that or at christmas whatever but um, it was not really a part of of, um, what i was exposed to until i got uh, as i said into the restaurant business Um, and i I really started work as soon as i legally could at 15 Um, and i started busting tables and um, then i slowly but surely got you know, just realized I had a real passion for food and wine, not, not wine yet, but food, food and, (laughs) and, uh, food culture. And, um, then there's this, uh, interesting law in Idaho where you can be a bartender when you're 18. And so I started working with blending cocktails and, I wasn't allowed to drink them. Sometimes I could like try a little sip out of a straw to see what we were making or whatever, if we were doing a training exercise. Um, and it just, from, from the very beginning, I just enjoyed, it's probably how a chef relates to food, um, but I immediately enjoyed just seeing this blend of all these ingredients come together and try to create something special and giving it to people and seeing people have a good time with it. So. Um, that's that's really I guess in the early days how I how I got interested in wine and then um, and then I sort of forgot about all that while I was in college and I was just studying and and really interested in intellectual pursuits Um, and then uh, yeah then as I said when I when I left college I started working at the wine shop and That was the Boise Co-op wine shop which was uh, brand newly opened and it was the first large freestanding wine shop in Idaho. Um, And we had a selection um, of Burgundy specifically there that had its own room and it was its own very specific climate control and I think they spent three quarters of the budget of the whole store on Burgundy. It was like completely out of control <laughs> for the for the market there, um, and uh, I decided, okay, this is like the most dorky part of the store. I really want to learn all about this stuff, and so um, it became my job specifically to go and organize the Burgundy Burgundy selection, build displays, and um, I ended up putting up um, the the wine maps that many of us know. Um, up on the walls and organizing the selection along with the maps along the whole wall. And through that process, everything got sorted into its own area. And I got to learn, well, what, what, what's the difference between Cote Roti and, and Cote de Bone, and and then each individual vineyard beyond that. And, um, and yeah, and I, I just loved it. It was the first time I had had a job where every single day at work I was just fascinated by what I was doing and uh, my boss and co-workers were were just like loved that I was so passionate about it also Um, so um, there's a lot of good momentum there Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, at the same time I was doing some sommelier training as well to continue to learn more about the rest of the world of wine beyond Burgundy Um, and uh, then I got a second job um, as, a, as a bar manager and a sommelier at a, at a restaurant in town. And I did both of those jobs for a couple of years. And uh, then one day, we had a winemaker visiting um, from uh, Mata out of Provence in southern France. And um, we, we had gone out to dinner, and, and we were just chatting. And they told me that there was this thing available called the Harvest Internship. And I was like, wow i'll I'll work my butt off if you let me come and do that for you <laughs> and I was like, this is my chance to to travel right now so um, so uh, yeah, I worked it out and ended up going over there and um, and then at that point I really I wasn't convinced that I wanted to make wine yet I was still figuring out what's my place in the wine industry um, but i I did all the typical things I learned how to sh- shovel grape stems and clean drains, and I learned not to breathe out of the fermenters while they're active <laughs> and you know all the all the all the intro lessons that people learn um, in their first season and I also just got to live in this place that was in the countryside and there there were five generations of families that were you know three of them were buried in the property and um it it was just like this amazing experience it was a place that i had never seen before Um, and um, so i I decided that um, i wanted to learn a little bit more about winemaking but i didn't speak french Um, so then i then i i took a job in south australia where i could learn about lab work and all the technical sides of winemaking Um, and, uh, and I went and worked at Hewitson Winery in the Barossa Valley there. And I stayed through Harvest and then I stayed, um, since I had sales experience, I stayed and helped them with some sales work for about six months after that to kind of um, get get a, a little more, um, get a perspective on how things, how that worked in another country, mm-hmm. I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and how importing worked. and. Um, so really I, I, I decided at that point, I don't, I, I might want to be a winemaker, I might want to start my own winery, but, uh, but I want to see what all these jobs in the industry are first and, and really make sure. So, um, that was the last place that I, uh, traveled out of the country. I felt like I had, had achieved my goal there and, um, I came back to Boise and, uh, Started working at the wine shop again, and I got my job back as uh, as my as my sommelier position. Um, and there, the Snake River Valley was a newly formed AVA in um, in the in, in, around Boise, and there were a couple of new uh, producers there that were doing really good work um, that had moved from Washington um, out of the Walla Walla area. So they were coming with a lot of experience and and doing things really by the book. Um, and um, so I, uh, I got a job as first as an intern. Um, and that was at Cinder Winery. And um, worked there along with my couple of other jobs for a few years until they offered me a full-time job as an enologist. And um, so then I was finally able to fully commit to the wine industry and um, really start focusing only on, on winery work. Pick it back up there in a second. Uh, obviously, you mentioned kind of wanting to see all of, all of the
1: jobs and all of the, all of the places. So, tell me about retail wine and what you learned at both the wine shop and a and small EA front of house side. Tell me about building wine lists. Tell me about selling wine to people directly. What did you learn and what, what, what did you enjoy about it?
2: Yeah, um, well, I mean, um, really, most days at the wine shop involve people coming in and, and sort of wandering around with big eyes. Like, I want something really great right now, but I have absolutely no idea where to start. Right. And, um, so yeah, I would just walk up to people and ask them what I could help them with. And hopefully they would be able to give me some information and I could, I could help them find some wine and, um, then they would be, or they'd be, you know, there's a group of wine collectors who would come in also, and then they would tell me stories. Um, and it was the other way around. They'd be like, well, you haven't, you don't know about this yet, I know, but let me tell you about this. And so, you know, I got to learn about all the esoteric ways to make German wine, for example, or Italian wine, all these very deep um, roads in the wine industry from those guys. And that was a lot of fun. And then, you know, we also developed a community around that where we would, where you know, we would have wine dinners together with those folks. And then, then I got access to drinking wine out of their cellars that had been aged. And that was a whole nother level of wine that I didn't have access to at the time. Um, and was, it, it was, it became like, kind of like a really good um not really a mentorship, but just an exposure to, to what wine collecting is all about. And, um, and yeah, so, I mean, that was really, and then there were also, there was also the opportunity to give classes at the wine shop. Um, and that's something that I, I really enjoyed. And it was another opportunity for me to learn. And, um, this is an opportunity to share with people who are really interested in what was going on. Um, and so, um, yeah, I enjoyed doing that and, uh, and then at the, at the restaurant, um, it was more like I get a, I mean, it was my domain. I get to pick the wines that are available for people when they come in for dinner. And um, I really try, I, I took a lot of pride in making sure that there were good wines that were accessible for people. Um, I've always felt like it was really important for um Anyone who really wants to, um, maybe you even you know have to save up money for a week to go out to dinner or something like that. But if you really want a bottle of wine, it, it shouldn't need to cost you a couple hundred dollars. There, I always try to help people find great wines that can even be you know twenty to fifty dollars a bottle, so they can have that wines that can provide the experience of of really having a moment and and, and not just taste you know like a a lot of other things. Mm-hmm. So. Um, that's really what, what I was focused on in the, uh, in the sommelier role. So as you were educating yourself
1: and being educated in these wines, what did you find yourself sort of drawn to, both as a, as, a, as a drinker of wine and as a, as a builder of these lists? What were the kinds of wines that excited you the most?
2: Yeah, I mean, well, um, initially it was the wines that I'm, that I'm talking about. It was trying to find the real values in the wine world. Um, whether it was an underrepresented region um, or some, some grapes like B- Blau Frankisch, v- Zweigelt, uh, Gruner at the time, still relatively un- undiscovered, mm-hmm. um, or um, uh, Champagne specifically right out of the gate was to me um something that was like singularly unique and amazing and then and now we're talking about the other side of the spectrum in terms of price too right and (laughs) um but i um i I, uh you know there were bottles of wine um uh, bottles of champagne that that would that were available for $35 at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, Pierre Gimenez, for example. Um, I, I remember um, it was 96, Pierre Peter's um, Blanc de Blanc was um, really, I had, a, I had a magnum of that that I had bought for the restaurant. And then ended up opening um, with my family for a family event. And that that was really like the wine that that Blew my mind the most up to that point um, to where I saw, wow, I have no idea how this person could make something like this. Mm-hmm. And and I really want to find out how that works. Um, it was just very inspiring. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's really uh, and and the restaurant was. I like talking. I'm a very social person, and it was a great outlet for for that also. Yeah. So I really enjoyed just going around talking to people at their tables, um, having conversations about their evening and their wine in general. Um, and so, yeah, at that point, it, there was a good balance in terms of like, um, you know, I was I was working in all these different areas at once, but um, not not really sustainable for very long to be <laughs> working three jobs. Um, And so, yeah, so then I I did work um, for for Cinder uh, full time. And then uh, about that time, I also had um, one of the importers Um, that was selling to, uh, both the restaurant and the, and the wine shop offered me a a sales position and, uh, he specifically sold, um, the Terry Thies portfolio, um, the whole thing. And that was a lot of the best champ grower champagne specifically that were coming into the state at the time. Um, and so then I, I, I basically worked with him so that I would be able to try all those wines. (laughs) And, and, uh, you know, and he loved to, uh, he loved to share them with me and, and, teach me about all of them. So it, it was really great. And I worked with him for a couple of years and tried through a couple of vintages of all of these producers. And, um, it was at that time that I, I was thinking, okay, I do want to m- make my own wine. I was realizing like, I, I want to be working for myself. I have too many ideas. And, um, at this point in time, I, I think like, Making something happen for another producer isn't isn't really where I want to go anymore. I want to like make my own Mm -hmm. make my own ideas happen Mm -hmm. and that was um, that was all about champagne Mm -hmm. and uh, Snake River Valley is very very similar to Walla Walla. It's geographically part of the same zone um, through the Missoula floods. It was carved out through the Missoula floods and um, the weather is hot in the summer. and so it's just not um, not the most ideal climate to make sparkling wine in the Northwest. And so um, I started looking at the Willamette Valley. And um, I thought, OK, I'm going to find a couple producers in the north part of the Willamette Valley that are making wines that I really appreciate, wines that show restraint and precision and, uh, you know what what people call terroir just just expression of, of their place in the soil and weather specifically and um, one of those wines that I found um, just while I was trying things was uh, Mattello, and that was uh, made by Marcus Goodfellow uh, it's now Goodfellow Family Cellars but uh, I um, I called Marcus and um, came out to visit him um, and really intending on wanting to, uh, bring his wines into Idaho and sell them. Um, and, and so, yeah, I came to visit with him and, and we spent the afternoon trying through a cellar and, and saw eye to eye on a lot of things. And I, I thought, okay, you know, there's really is something here, um, that I need to explore a little more. So we kept in touch and I, and I would go and, um, I talked to several other winemakers on that trip, and I asked people, "Why why don't you make sparkling wine?" I know that there's Argyle, and they do a fantastic job, and have for years, but that's really all I see coming out of the area. So, why don't you make sparkling wine? You have Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, um, and people typically would say, "Well, I'm a, I'm a Pinot Noir maker. I, that's what I do," mm-hmm. and so that like that's that, <laughs> and um, they're very serious and dedicated to that. So. What I was seeing was that there wasn't a lack of ability to make this happen. It was just that people were already very committed to their, their to their own craft, mm-hmm. and that hadn't just hadn't come up yet. Yeah. So, um, really, that was when I realized, okay, this is where I need to be moving eventually, and this is going to be the next step for me, mm-hmm. coming to coming to the Willamette Valley. So, um, a couple of years later, uh, I. Um, had kept in touch with, with Marcus and um, he had moved to a larger facility and needed help. And timing worked out well. Um, he brought me on as an assistant winemaker. And that was in 2012. Before we get to Oregon, tell me about
1: your first harvest experience. You mentioned Provence, you mentioned kind of the history of the place and obviously a place you've never been. Mm-hmm. What about the work itself? What, what, what about the work of winemaking made you
2: want to keep doing it? Yeah, so um, that's an that's an, a, another very important piece um, to me is is the actual um, the, the actual physical work, and part of what I was starting to realize there was that um, that the the work is it offers I I felt like it was offering me more than just um, a way to get a paycheck, um, which is really what I uh, that's really ideal I think for most people you know you get something else for for your job and. Um, I think, uh, the work, what I was realizing was it was very, it was pushing me in, in unexpected ways. So it's sort of like, you know, when you go skiing for the first time of the season, you have all these sore muscles you didn't know you had or, or whatever. Um, but, um, it, it, it pushed me and just caused me to continue to grow in, in unexpected ways. And I'm, I, I thought that that was really, uh, exciting. Um, and, um. In Provence specifically there was there was this um, like I said, this history there, and um, I, my family's very close, and I've always been a very family oriented person, so that was was really meaningful to me as well. Um, and yeah, I mean, it was just something that would push me out of my comfort zone just enough um, to where I'd have to rise to the occasion over and over whether that was something that was mentally challenging, like just the boredom of doing some very repetitive task for five hours um, and finding a way to, uh, to push through that and try to get something out of it, or just being physically tired, whether it's uh, sleep deprivation during harvest or um, you know just doing some physical task that, that, uh, was, was, you know, giving me sore muscles <laughs> and continuing to have enthusiasm through all of that. Um, or, um, you know, it, it, what I really like about harvest work specifically or bottling work, I guess a lot of these manual labor parts of the job is, is that it, I think it keeps you, um, keeps your feet on the ground. Um, when you're, when you're cleaning out a, a drain from all of harvest, it's not. It's like you know the grossest kind of plumbing work you can be doing almost, and it really I think it keeps it keeps you grounded while you're doing this um, amazing job at the same time, and you have so much that's um, that's more glamorous. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So um, I really like that, and, and I've really you know there's there's a, a real um, to me. It's very spiritually satisfying this type of work, and whether that's just, you know, providing a connection to the earth through this through this farming practice, and then working with um, all the elements to create something that we can all enjoy at the end of the day, um, or just having to deal with the differences between uh, one harvest to the next, and what challenges are getting thrown my way. Um, it's really like to me this alchemical process of that the grapes go through in this in this literal traditional way but that also happens to me um throughout the year too so um you know i'm i'm going through this process that's different every single year too and 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 i come out a different person every year because of it um which which i think is absolutely amazing and you
1: mentioned the next work was uh, in is both in Australia and then in Idaho. Uh, obviously, a, a different look uh, from the from the kind of the, the cellar grunt work to the to the chemistry in the lab. So, tell me about about learning that part of it and uh, what that kind of
2: added to your skill set and to your experience. Yeah, right. So, um, the lab work was was a really fun piece for me because I was uh, a, a science nerd as a child. I was always re- I was just always like, you know, doing science experiments, ha- asking for chemistry sets, biology, going hunting for snakes or whatever in the desert, all these things. Um, and uh, I actually, when I, when I got my bachelor's degree, I was the only person uh, that year to get a bachelor's of science degree in philosophy instead of a bachelor's of arts. <laughs> and uh, it was just a matter of like, I'm taking what classes are fun and interesting to me. Um, even if they don't necessarily um, go together traditionally, so. Um, but you know, then when I got into the winery, this all started started working together. So um, yeah, I I, I started um, learning how to do the lab work, which I just thought was was um, fun. Um, and um, whether that's um, learning first how how to how yeast cells divide and how to properly build up a strong yeast culture to inoculate fermentations. Or then choosing a strain of um, of malolactic bacteria that you want to use, seeing what all these different things um, do from barrel to barrel, and what you like and don't like, and how they blend together, Um, and um, also seeing sort of like how what what are what are my taste buds telling me, what are my instincts telling me about what's going on with the wine, and then. What do I get in the lab, and how does that match up? Mm-hmm. Um, and eventually, um, learning to really trust that I think my most useful instrument is, is my taste. Mm-hmm. And um, having yeah. the confidence to just know how to make decisions on the fly without having to always send everything in to get it double-checked. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's you know that's that's when I started developing some of those skills, um, and then later on, um, using the lab to do cell counts when you're um, doing a secondary fermentation um, for uh, to make sparkling wine and making sure that um, you know uh, you you you've got this thing started properly it's going to be okay in the bottle and it's going to come out right on the other end because at that point there's no going back Um, (laughs) so you know doing those cell counts is very fun and it's also um it's it's immediately like gratifying to know okay things are going to be good right now yeah reassuring it's reassuring yes exactly um but uh, I would say that, um, I mean, I definitely, um, really, uh, appreciate the lab as a tool to ver, to verify things. Um, and certainly it helps with things like picking decisions. Um, and, um, you know, it keeps, it keeps the wines on the rails, if you want to call it that. Um, but for me, it's really a way to, it's really is limited to be aware, a way to verify my, my instincts. Yeah. And it's not um, it's not a way that I like to I don't like to have the lab guide my decision making mm-hmm. um, when I'm putting the wines together. So we talked earlier, a little bit
1: earlier about sort of your impressions of Oregon as you were looking for a place to make sparkling, you had kind of explored around and you'd found wines and winemakers you appreciated and not necessarily but not necessarily a lot of sparkling. So I'm curious before coming here, what were your impressions of the wines being made here and what did you sort of think about as you were coming here that you would that we you bring
2: to the table? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, really, I mean, there's a there's a wonderful variety of wines already being made here in that you know, 12 years ago, um, and um, a lot of it though was based on all of these nuanced differences. Uh, I mean, it was kind of like Burgundy is how I was thinking about it. I mean, I don't think I've always thought Oregon is unique and, and special and stands on its own. It doesn't need to be like Burgundy or like any other region because it's special here. Um, But I saw as much variety as as I was seeing um, in the in the Cote de Beaune, for example. What I but what I wanted to bring to the table was was um, you know a new style of winemaking. Really, I thought, okay, there's an opportunity here to really create something new that should be widespread in this market. Um, It's just uh, you know it. Those were the the earlier generations were, were paving the way to be able to do that later by figuring out where's the place to plant Pinot Noir, where do we plant Chardonnay, what clones are we going to plant, and what are the differences between, you know, the R- R- Ribbon Ridge and uh, Van Duzer Corridor or, or um, McMinnville AVA or all these places, right? So I got to walk into this wealth of information and um, really, um, decided okay what i what i would like to contribute here is um this has all been done wonderfully and so now i can take all these all these inputs and run them through the sparkling winemaking process in a traditional way by the book and see what what comes out Um, and um, so that's what i was doing for the first couple of years um, that after i started melon meyer specifically was Doing things as by the book, uh, by the Champagne method book, as possible, um, and then just trying to look at um, all the all the different sources I was using and, and how they were similar or different from each other. And uh, I mean that's really a, a that's that's a long-term process. That's a long-term research project. Um, because the fact is it takes minimum two, but more commonly like four to six years to create these bottles of wine. Mm-hmm. So um, we're really still in the early stages of that exploration. Um, and fortunately um, it's something that's caught the, I think that it's, it's become like an intellectual fascination for tons and tons of winemakers in the Valley at this point. And, um, you know, every last year, I think I was saying that there were over thirty people producing sparkling wine. I think that number is definitely higher this year. Um, so it's really wonderful.
1: So before starting Mellon Meyer, you were working with Marcus as assistant winemaker. So tell me about about that role and about working there while also sort of starting to
2: plan what would become your own thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, and so um, you know, I was always talking with him about. Uh, really, um, what I needed to learn first was how's Oregon. okay, Oregon is different. Things um, need to, you know, the wines being produced here need to be produced differently than other regions that I've been in. And so first it's like covering those basics, like how do we, you know, what's the difference between when when we're harvesting the fermentation kinetics, um, how to manage all the tannins in different parts of the fermentation. Um, so on and so forth people are using different methods and techniques in the cellar that I had not seen before and, and um, so um, you know it's sort of getting all the tools um, together um, in, it, so that I'll have access to them and also um, getting to know the the vineyards as i said and what are what are going to be some of the inherent qualities of the fruit that comes from this or this or this place and since those are those are the raw materials that you're that you're starting with so get your raw materials and your tools and kind of figure out how everything works together Um, and that's and we would have almost daily conversations about all those variables and the first thing that struck me about being in the organ wine industry was um, and this is something I think most people recognize here is how wonderfully collaborative and open and encouraging um, people are with each other. Everyone's willing and excited to share information and help people who are newer or who are trying something different and um, you know and when I started producing sparkling wine um, things were going well um, it was really a wonderful feeling when I had uh, very experienced winemakers asking me for my opinion about how to produce something that they hadn't done before, and then in turn, they were giving me advice about how to produce um, you know, Pinot Noir mm-hmm. in a more traditional way. Mm-hmm. So this collaborative effort, I think, is just really wonderful for, for the industry here in general.
1: So with the decision to, to focus on sparkling, tell me about sort of starting your brand um, coming up with a name, coming up with uh, starting to source vineyards and decide how to start the research project.
2: Yeah, yeah. So um, it really was, uh, the first question was, can I do this? <laughs> can I make sparkling wine that works and tastes good and, and turns out? Um, and I had, I had a conversation with some people who uh, told me, um, you're you're basically, you're trying to... Build a Ferrari before you know how to build a go car. Like you need, don't do that. <laughs> and I and and they also said, I know you're going to do it anyway, but I just want to let you know that's my opinion. <laughs> and I said, okay, we understand each other. Um, and it's true, but I mean, my thinking was this is what I came here to do, so I, I'm just going to have to go ahead and do it. And um, luckily, I um, well, I had been um, married the year before, and. Um, my wife was very supportive and excited about what I was working on, and uh, so uh, the Melon Meyer name came from Mellon which is my middle name, um, and Meyer, which is my wife's maiden name. Mm-hmm. And uh, since um, I was originally inspired by family nature of the wine business, um, I definitely wanted that to be a part of the the name and the history of our winery. What about? Choosing
1: the grapes with which to work. Uh, obviously, you, you, you had started to familiarize yourself. You had started to sample the various AVAs. Didn't have a lot of uh, experience with sparkling to test. So, what were you sort of looking for uh, when you were coming up with grapes to source?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, I had an idea from trying so many champagnes and having um, having a lot of points of reference. Like, what a, what would I like the wine to taste like? And um, so I, and I, I knew I was going to limit it to um, traditional champagne varieties, so Pinot Noir, are clones of Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. Um, and uh, another really um, important, uh, another piece of the puzzle of wines that I have always liked are things that um, show a lot of um, soil minerality and, and are brighter in, in, in tone. Um, and so, um, I was thinking, okay, well, I need things that are on the higher elevation side of things so that I can get as much of that brightness and and tension in the wines as possible. Um, and also just the fact that, um, wines from Ribbon Ridge, um, in the beginning, um, and, um. And Van duzer were were just the favorite my favorite things that I'd had for years and years once I had gotten here, mm-hmm. so I knew that there was something in those ABAs that resonated with me personally so um, so those were the first sites that I sought out to work with mm-hmm. um, and and uh, then I had an opportunity to get some fruit from the Dundee Hills as well, which um, I um, I thought would be make for a good blending component um, because some of the other sites can be. A, a bit austere and so um you know it's part, a big part of cham- the tradition in champagne is blending um and uh, all non-vintage champagnes are blended and some of the best wines that are made there are blended from decades of different um, lots mm-hmm. so um but really yeah i mean i was really looking pr- um primarily to to uh ribbon ridge ava and and i had a connection there and access to fruit from um, whistling ridge north block and in 2013 uh well i was still the assistant um at Goodfellow family Cellars, um marcus said okay yeah let's go ahead and and make some wine we'll we'll get a ton of fruit in and um that year was incredibly rainy and um which worked out perfectly for what I wanted. Luckily. Um, and so the first wine I made was a Sanier method Rose. So I, I, uh, fermented for Pinot Noir for still Pinot Noir. And then, um, after I, I let the fruit soak for about five or six days. And, um, then I pulled some of the juice off, um, to try to concentrate the skins, um, and get some of the excess water out. Um, and, uh, so while uh, most wineries were taking advantage of that opportunity to make rosé that year, um, I just decided to make sparkling rosé, mm-hmm. and um, I had it in this little oil can that was like about this big, <laughs> and I think it was—I don't know—it was enough to make about 30 cases of wine, um, and. Uh, <laughs> Um, I went through the process very painstakingly by myself um, in, in the back corner of the lab, and uh, then waited for three years to see what happened, and, um, and the wine turned out um, to be more expressive in the ways that I had hoped than, than I ever would have imagined it would be, so I thought, okay, we're really on the right track here, this is, um, this is going in the direction that I had in mind, So. Um, so yes is the answer, we can do this and let's, let's really dive in now at this point.
1: So tell me about that. Obviously wine itself it requires a lot of patience, but sparking wine e- even more so. So tell me about the kind of keeping up the sort of optimism and, and, and the work as you're waiting for it to come out the other side. Was there, were you, when you tasted the first time or when you tasted the, the finished product, were you prepared if it didn't work out? Were you prepared to
2: change your mind and do something else? Uh, well, no. I mean, luckily I didn't have to go through that, that, that battle with myself. Um, that's not to say that of course there are problems that come up along the way, but they weren't as drastic as like, I have a finished product and it tastes terrible and I can't sell it. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, um, there were definitely, um, I mean, it was it was really. I think it helped too that my perspective after the first couple of vintages was really like, okay, I'm still learning about um, how this works in this area, and um, and so is everyone else. So I don't expect these wines to be perfect right off the bat. I want them to be t- delicious and taste good, and I want people to be excited to drink them. But as a producer, your standards are first. Sometimes they're just not even realistic or achievable, right? And um, I I think that that's a common thing for people who make arts in general. Mm -hmm. And and so, you know, there's I think I think it's a matter of faith. I mean, it's like it it really is um, saying, okay, this isn't perfect this time around, but, it you know, I'll remember it doesn't need to be. And what can I learn? How can I, you know, it's like, how can I try to tweak this or that thing to get this a little bit closer to what my ideal bottle is going to look like. And um, and that challenge is really a, a big driving force for me. And and it's something that keeps you intellectually engaged in, in what you're doing. And um, as I've said before, I, I need that in order to sort of stick with whatever I'm working on. You mentioned, obviously, blending is a big part of, of what you do.
1: So tell me about, with the first wine, the first couple of years of wine, me about starting to kind of. Come work with the blending and work with fi- f- what the finished product was going to be. How confident were you in the decisions you were making at that point, and what were you sort of learning through that process?
2: Yeah. So I mean, from the from the very well, the second year, um, two thousand fourteen, um, I started holding back reserve wine um, and um, keeping it um, in a in a Solera style tank. So every year I would be adding some fraction back to that tank and taking some amount out and blending it into the non-vintage wine and so um i've always produced a non-vintage brute and um that's that is a big part of the tradition in champagne as well so you know I, that was a deliberate choice and this is a style um, that's worked well for them we do have a bit of a different situation here in that um the reason that was happening in Champagne was for so many years were because there's so many years where it was just like too cold to get things ripe enough to, to, to make good wine with. Or there'd be some drastic weather event or they needed the ability to blend vintages together to fill out every year. And um, and here, that's not the case. I mean, there are challenging years and there are easier years. Um, but um, you can really make a single vintage wine every year if, 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 you, if you want. Mm Um, but, um, you know, I also like the tradition and the ability to like, why not make a non-vintage wine? there's nothing inherently worse about that. It's it's actually you know like blended wines are wonderful. Mm-hmm. So you have an opportunity with sparkling wine specifically to be able to do that, and people don't ask questions. And They're like, oh, this is a non-vintage Pinot Noir. What like what happened, or whatever. So <laughs> so um, yeah, and then and then watching this uh, tank of this Solera method. Reserve wine evolve over years and years and years was was incredibly interesting, um, and it's still something that I that I have and have maintained now for ten years. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, um, you know, learning what is Pinot Noir, how is Pinot Noir, ex- the expression of Pinot Noir different here than it is in Champagne and how is Chardonnay different and Pinot Meunier, how's that different? Um, these, these are all used for very specific blending purposes in Champagne and um, in Oregon, um, I've come to really believe that, that they are, that that works differently. They still blend well together, of course, but, um, Pinot Meunier, for example, is, is used to add a little bit of, of depth and um, breadth to wines in years that are a little too austere and maybe too skeletal. And the Chardonnay is too, too skeletal. And, um, and we just have more, uh, more flavor and more breadth in the wines here out of the gate. And so I, I see Pinot Meunier not as much as a blending component here, but as a standalone opportunity to make a standalone wine, mm-hmm. um, and whether that's sparkling or still or rosé, sparkling or still. Um, so um, yeah, there's the, there's the, you know, I, I wanted to start traditionally and then to, let's see where this takes us in our own region and try to really focus on um, what's this wine like in Oregon. Mm-hmm. Not We're not trying to imitate anyone else we learn you know I learned I learned the method to produce this from their history mm-hmm. but the wines do and should taste different here so let's embrace that and see where that takes us Talk about growing the brand and as you as you were having
1: success as you were as you were tasting wines that you were happy with did you have sort of a size in mind or a, uh, a uh, an end goal was there a goal in goal uh, that you were looking to st- sort of strive toward
2: yeah i mean um i've um i've always thought that uh, you know between three and five thousand cases is a good size for a winery that is um really oriented to towards um smaller production um like very hands-on winemaking Mm -hmm. and less mechanized winemaking and that's uh, that's what i enjoy doing and um, that yields the results that i'm looking for um in in my wines and um lines of, of other friends and colleagues mm-hmm. in the industry. So, I mean, I think that that's a good, a good size and scale. Um, and then it's a matter of, of, um, ultimately, you know, hope having some plantings in some new areas that are not explored yet because they're not where we would be planting for still wine, but for sparkling wine, uh, maybe more ideal than what we already have. So there's a lot to look ahead in the future there. And um, I'm very, very excited to see those things start to go in um, both for myself, but also as since so many people are excited about this now and people who have um, the resources to really do deep research and plant wherever the heck they want in whatever volume they want, um, it's going to be happening more and more. And I I think it's going to be incredibly exciting. It'll be a big expansion in our industry for sure. Talk about selling wine a little bit.
1: Uh, obviously, once you have wine, you got to do something with it. So tell me, <laughs> tell me, tell me about finding a market. Uh, obviously, it seems kind of funny to look at it now, defining a sparkling wine market. But when you were starting, you still had to f- kind of find that market. Uh, tell me about
2: finding the places for your wine and, and and how you sort of chose to approach sales. Yeah. So um, I mean, the first uh, probably five or six years that I after I had started my winery and I had. Um, committed to Mellon Meyer, and I was no longer working at, at Goodfellow Family Sellers. Um, I uh, I was working, um, I worked for a couple of different companies as a, as a wholesale representative. So, um, and, and part of my job at Goodfellow was also uh, sales work. So I um, was developing contacts in the area. And really, originally, I was just um, intending on um, just selling direct myself through those contacts. And, um, early on, um, it was, it I mean, my first, my first year, uh, I was bringing these wines out. Um, people were like, Oh, this is interesting. Like sparkling wine. I don't know if we can sell that. I mean, we'll try it. Oh, this is really good, but I don't, I'm not sure. Like I'll take six bottles. I don't. We'll see if they move. <laughs> and um, the restaurants, um, the sommeliers were a little bit more receptive, um, because um, you know I, I've always continued as, as I as I did when I was a sommelier. I always try to have a wine available that's um, that's really something that people can afford to buy, um, that's accessible, and that's what the non-vintage brood is about. Um, it's, it's not compromising quality, but bringing something to, to a larger audience mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and, and sommeliers love that because they're like, Oh, I can pour this by the glass. It doesn't need to be on the bottle list and therefore move, move a lot slower. And, um, and so that worked well for that wine. I also, um, for the first, first, um, eight years of production was, uh, I was making a sparkling Riesling in the traditional German Zekt style. And that was something that Salmi absolutely loved because Riesling was really like becoming a darling grape for them. And it was very, it was very dry, very food friendly. Um, and something that, that we didn't, I mean, there were only I think two or three bottles that we were even getting from Germany at the time. So it was a really unique product that mm-hmm. had a lot of history. And so that, um, that helped me get a lot of inroads, um, with that crowd as well. And, um, Local, local grocers were were really, um, like New Seasons Market specifically, was was really supportive. Um, and um, since they expanded very quickly about the same time that I was expanding, um, that helped a lot too. <laughs> so <laughs> um, that, over the years, just sort of worked itself out. But, um, you know, and I was making volumes of wine commensurate with what I thought I'd be able to be selling at the time. So... Mm-hmm um, luckily
1: that, that, that worked out. Obviously you had a lot of experience selling wine, as you mentioned before, and, and during the same time,
2: how was it different selling your own wine? Uh, it was, um, I mean, this is something that like when you're selling wholesale wine for other people, um, it's kind of like you have to study and learn the bullet points and try to sell people on, on the idea and, and really like, hope to not get too many questions that you can't answer or whatever. Um, and, uh, and then when it's your product, it's really more like, um, I found that I just like to pour the wine and let people try it and, and let them come to me with questions and have more of a dialogue. And it's much, um, I, I, I appreciate that di- the dynamic because it's, it's not as much of a, of a sales interaction as it is just a conversation and, and what they think they can do with the product. Mm-hmm. So, um, I, I love that change for sure.
1: What about dealing with sort of the, the, you've got this product you've created that is obviously very personal to you and very exciting. Dealing with people who, who don't appreciate it the way you do or, or or don't, don't want to sell it or don't, don't think it's good. Yeah. How does that, how does it feel when you're taking the wine on the market and dealing with any
2: kind of rejection? Yeah. I mean, it's always hard. Um, it's, it's, I think, uh, and I've had people tell me like, hey, you know, this, these are great, but I just don't know what I can do with them. Um, I don't have, my buyers aren't looking for this. And, and that's, it's, that's hard because you're like, oh, am I, you know, am I spending all this time making something that isn't really gonna go anywhere? Um, but again, I think that's where you just have to have faith in what you're doing. And sometimes it's just blind. I mean, it's not based on anything. It's just like, I really believe in this and that's gotta be enough right now. And it's a matter of being stubborn, bullheaded, and maybe just kind of like ignorant to the reality of the situation and <laughs> waiting it out. So um, I mean, that's really how I got through all those moments. Yeah. Curious about about 2020. We've talked to a lot of producers about
1: 2020 and, and obviously most of them were making red still wine, so a little bit different. So I'm yeah. curious about your Harvest 2020 experience. Uh, were you affected by Harvest of 2020 in any way?
2: Did it, did it change your plans in any way? Um, I mean, it got it got my butt moving really fast. Um, <laughs> it, um, you harvest uh, fruit for sparkling wine earlier um, at, at lower bricks anyway, so the timing really worked out to where I was picking during the first week where there was pressure coming in to pick. Mm-hmm. And I had already planned and made those arrangements, and the fruit was not picked early, it was picked at the right time. It just timing-wise worked out. Mm-hmm. Um, Additionally, um, when you make sparkling wine, you're pressing it. It's just like making white wine. You press it right away, and it doesn't spend any time in contact with the grape skins or anything on the surface of the grape skins. So um, I was able to dodge a couple of obstacles there and really um, get get the juice out. And um, yeah, and it, it it worked out okay for me, fortunately. Yeah, uh, but I also didn't know all year. You know, I was like, I don't know what's Let's, if there's anything in, in the grape or, um, I mean, this is new. I, I was, I was looking up research from Australia mm-hmm. where they've had a lot of weather problems for years and years and years and seeing, okay, what am I going to do if this comes up or, and, and definitely relying on the lab to verify that there weren't things that were going to be coming up. So mm-hmm. yeah. Um, that, that was the less stressful year for me than it luckily than it was for most people. Yeah. yeah.
1: So what point did you feel like uh, you had, you sort of had, not not, not arrived, but that Mellon Meyer was going to work and that it was time to kind of put all
2: your effort into that? Um, Yeah, I mean, it it was as soon as I felt like I was not able to, um, like, uh, having two jobs was preventing me from putting enough time into Mellon Meyer. So it was really just like a requirement almost, and like, I can't. I'm finding myself, I'm not able to communicate as well with my wine club members, or I'm not uh, able to, just dropping the ball from time to time, I forgot this appointment that I had with this um, wine shop, or stuff like that it started happening for just a couple of months. And I'm like, okay, you know, I think it's time to f- face the reality that I have to let go of the, of the security blanket of having a steady stream of income and, and just go ahead and jump into this thing and and know that really that was the only way that the winery was gonna be successful ultimately was if I did that.
1: You talked earlier about sort of the single vineyard sparkling as becoming sort of the, the main thing, one of the main things you're doing. Tell me about honing in on vineyards and building relationships to, to find the grapes you wanted to make the wines you're making now.
2: Yeah, yeah. So um i mean uh as i said from the beginning um i was working with uh, whistling ridge uh, north block specifically uh, which is about a mile um, up the road north of the main vineyard site and it's in an area that's like totally surrounded by trees parts of it are are completely shaded all afternoon even Um, and so historically it was used to make rose most commonly Um, and so it was a natural fit for sparkling wine um, in, in terms of like when it was getting ripe and Um, and, uh, I had developed a relationship with the vineyard owners and managers. Um, when I was assistant, um, at Goodfellow family sellers. So, um, and that, that as I've said is, uh, I mean, I, it's just been my, my very favorite vineyard since I've been in Oregon and even before. Um, I just, I just love the expression, um, from that Mm site. So, um, I, you know, I couldn't be happier to be working with that, and um, and then um, I was also working with Johan Vineyard early on because um, a, an important part of my winemaking process is uh, is uh, native fermentations, and so I'm not inoculating for primary fermentation, and um, I I haven't done that um, at all, mm-hmm. and so finding vineyards that. Um, are biodynamic or organically farmed, or at least naturally farmed, not necessarily certified, but mm-hmm. um, vineyards that that aren't applying things that that really suppress the natural microbial populations on the fruit. So um, being a biodynamic farm at Johan, these things are coming in like full of life. And um, I, I really appreciate the, the tradition and the stewardship that, and the real attention to detail and effort that goes into biodynamic farming. Um, and so, you know, I'm I'm very happy to have access to work with that fruit, and it also, um, when when the fermentations start really fast because they come in with this very healthy active yeast population, you don't have to worry about a lot of the spoilage problems that can happen early on if you're doing a natural fermentation, waiting for um, things to start up. So you get to almost skip that danger zone in the beginning. Which is awesome, <laughs> and uh, um, and then uh, you know the the Riesling site was um, another site that I had an earlier connection with, um, and um, it uh, it was also another site that was just typically very very late harvest, even sometimes um, the wines when they were made as still wines were just so bright in acidity, excuse me, in acidity that we'd have to wait four or five years to release them. And <laughs> so uh, easy, easy fit for sparkling wine. Yeah. And the vineyard the vineyard growers um, and, the, and the vineyard owners have always been, um, you know, I've had a great relationship with them just personally, and also they're very excited to see sparkling wine being made. Um, I think that it's, um, you know, I'm always very, uh, make an effort to, Share the wine with them, you know, give them an allocation of it, and um, I think it's it's a good feeling and it's fun for them to have bubbles being made from their site as well as still wines. So um, yeah, it's it's all there's. It's always been a very um, positive reciprocal relationship there with the growers.
1: So talk a little bit about about the growth of the brand so far, and a little bit about the future as well. Tell me about. Uh, looking ahead from Ellen Meyer, what are what are you looking ahead to? Are there, is there are there other projects, growth, new things you want to try, or what is
2: what is kind of on the horizon for you? Yeah, I mean, um, really, um, I've talked a lot about, um, and my my path for sales so far has been um, through wholesale, and eventually got into um, sending lines to New York and East Coast and Northern California, and you know to try to branch out of the Northwest a little bit, but. Um, mm. I, I really um, now am am dedicating time to building um, more direct sales and having more of a relationship with my direct customers, and um, having having time to have events with people and not just be focused on on making the wine um, and. And that's kind of all I've had time for. <laughs> um, I, I really just love sharing my wine with people directly. And, and I love having people make appointments and visit me and talk about, talk about the wines to real, the real like wine fans and wine collectors, since that has been a big part of my life. It's just a, naturally a fun thing for me to be doing. It. And so I'm really um, pushing to um, have a tasting room available um, that, that people can come and we can have that experience together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and as I've said ultimately, um, having uh, a vineyard planted with specifically selected clones and varieties that can really be a very long-term contribution to, to the wine industry in Oregon and even, even after I'm no longer producing wine.
1: And what about sort of outside of wine, anything else you're looking ahead to on a, on a more personal level?
2: Uh, well, I mean I am in the throes in the right in the middle of I have a, I have a four-year-old son and I have a 13-year-old son and um, So right now, I mean I've, I've really been it, My role as a father is extremely important to me. I'd say it's more important to me than the winery honestly and um, so I'm trying to make sure that I have the time to enjoy all these moments that I'm having with my children right now and the family in general and so in the summer, we're sort of, you know, slowing things down a bit deliberately and making sure that we take advantage of the time to go go do things together as a family. I continue to really like to read and sort of be a philosophy dork, and that's something I can do whenever there's time. So, <laughs> um, between that and spending time with friends and family, that's really, you know, that's really gives, I feel like I have a very full life.
1: Talked a little earlier about your initial impressions of Oregon, both before coming here and then once you were here. In what ways have you seen Oregon sort of grow and change since you've been here? And what does the industry look like to you now in twenty twenty
2: three compared to where it was when you got here? The sparkling wine industry has just exploded in the last few years, and so um, that's a that's a major major change. Um, and um, you know, and we've also seen a lot of um, generational change with winemakers too. Um, and, and I'm sure you've had conversations with, with many of those people. And so um, but I don't feel like the nature of um, the experience of Oregon wine has fundamentally changed in any way, which I think is a wonderful thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was started with all the right intentions and the right um, amount of effort and, and um, just the culture itself, um, I feel like, is very much the same as it was when I first started coming and visiting. And um, and I I think that's wonderful. That's something that I would hope w- would not change, even as the industry grows and grows and grows. Mm-hmm. The ability of um, people to start really from scratch and and create a brand and have a small brand and have that be something that people are excited to sort of explore and find when they come visit the Oregon Oregon wine areas, um, even even in the in, in the south or the north or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, finding those hidden gems is really fun for wine collectors. Um, and uh and the large producers continuing to be very supportive of that and everyone working together whether whether we're just having fun events together or um or whatever it is i mean that's i think what makes the oregon winery unique and wine industry unique and and uh interesting and um just distinctive in the world even um is uh yeah, I feel like it's a place for anyone to enjoy who's interested. What comes next for the Oregon wine industry then? I don't know. I mean, we're seeing a lot of change right now in terms of, um, I think, a lot of investment in the Oregon wine industry from out of state, and so we'll see where that leads. And I, I would anticipate there'll be some consolidation of some um, some wineries and. Um, and I'm also seeing people that started their wineries when I was starting 10 years ago, get to the point where they're um, no longer startups, but they're really having, um, they're having, like I said, they're having tasting rooms and they're having, um, th- they're becoming a central part of the industry as well. Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of them are bringing n- new varieties into the mix um, and working with um, you know different <laughs> styles of production um, and so I think that there's going to continue to be a little more diversification in terms of the style of wine that we're seeing here. Um, really there's just so much fantastic Pinot Noir and Chardonnay that's been made here for a very long time. Um, newer folks are trying to create and bring something new to the table. Mm-hmm. So that's going to continue. Um. And, uh, and I'm happy to be a part of that as well.
1: You mentioned uh, your kind of your initial answer to why wine. You Talk about kind of the, the culture of wine being something that attracted to you. So, this many years into your kind of life in, with wine, mm-hmm. how would you define sort of the culture of wine, and what appeals
2: what appeals about it to you? Uh, the culture of wine. Well, I mean, yeah, the culture of wine is. Um, I think it brings together people who. I like to have conversations with (laughs) there's a lot of people who, who, um, are, are interesting and have their own ideas about the world and, um, are very creative and artistic and also just very passionate and, and unafraid to sort of speak their mind. Mm -hmm. And I really appreciate all of that. I think that that's a big part of the culture of the, of the Oregon wine industry here. Um, and, um, I, you know and I still appreciate I, I guess I've spent the last 10 years working on the building the winery and I would like to um, and I, I'm seeing opportunities start to develop now where I'll be able to maybe take some summer trips and go visit other parts of the wine world mm-hmm. and um, you know drink some other wines that aren't that aren't just from Oregon <laughs> again <laughs> so I'm pretty excited about that last question for you uh, if some more to ask you for sort of words of wisdom or advice
1: on Entering the Oregon wine industry, what would you what would you tell them?
2: Yeah, I mean, um, I, it's it's a very welcoming place. Um, I think if you show up um, w- willing to um, ask a lot of questions and and learn and um, and be willing to do whatever type of work needs to be done, um, in exchange for that that wealth of information, that um, opportunities will unfold um, and and. You know, a path will present itself. Um, you just have to be willing to really just put in, put in whatever work people need you to put in, and be open-minded and enthusiastic about about that whole process.
1: All right. So yeah. All the questions that I have for you. Uh, anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything that we didn't cover here today that you'd like to cover?
2: Well, I um, I guess there is one thing, um, and um, it's so another part of. Um, how I spend my time, I guess that I hadn't mentioned is that um, for for twenty years I've been working with refugee populations that come into the United States, um, and um, I've I've learned a lot about what their opportunities are when they when they get to our country and um, and the obstacles that they have, and um, I would like to I, I would really like to see. Um, when we talk about people wanting to get into wine industry, um, I think that there is a lot of opportunity to bring in um, other parts of the global population in Oregon um, into the wine industry. Uh, It's just not something that um, they generally have the resources to buy bottles of wine when they arrive. but they are um, they're always extremely hardworking and willing to learn new things and excited to learn new things and just excited and hungry for opportunity Mm -hmm. and so um, i think um, if if we can come up with some creative ways to um, bring those opportunities to these parts of our population um, i think it would i think it would be really wonderful for everyone involved and that's something that is um, always kind of uh, I'm, I'm always milling around and thinking, trying to think of creative ways to, to um, you know, come up with programs or whatever to make that happen, mm-hmm. so. Excellent. I'm glad
1: you're able to share that. That's that's excellent work, no, noble work and admirable, so thank you for that. Yeah, thanks. Thank you so much for sharing, sharing your story with us today, sharing your time with us in this cool, funky space
2: in Portland. <laughs> yeah. We'll go ahead and let you off the hook. All right. Thank well, you. thank you so much.